This episode of Where Did It All Go Right is sponsored by Pearson. Pearson is the world's learning company, supporting talent and helping everyone to make progress in their lives through learning. Working with teachers and education experts, Pearson provides a wide range of qualification routes so you can pick the course which suits you best to develop your skills and stand out in the crowd. Visit them online at go.pearson.com forward slash where did it all go right. Hello again or welcome if you're new to Where Did It All Go Right? I'm Ali Jones and in this podcast we talk to creatives about the pivotal moments in their careers. We hope to inspire and entertain you. So this week's guest is documentary photographer Daniela Zaltzman. She's the founder of Women Photograph, a non-profit working to elevate the voices of women and non-binary visual journalists. And I'll leave her to tell you about all the projects that she's been working on. Uh, We spoke on the morning after the American election when everything was a little bit up in the air. Daniela, thanks for talking to me on what a momentous morning we've chosen to speak because with your background, did you wake up this morning? Did you stay up with the American election? What happened? I think I managed, I made it until about four and then I gave up and probably yeah I slept for a few hours and woke up and went fuck I think that was a lot of people's reactions actually because I think it's a bit of a shocker this morning isn't it were you surprised no no I in fact multiple people in my life were just like no Biden's gonna win by a landslide it's gonna be great and I was just like ah I don't know when you last left New York but I I don't I'm not confident and I I I have said that I would not be at all surprised if he was reelected, but we still have a lot of mail-in ballots. Yeah. And those are mostly going to be blue. So fingers crossed. It's on a knife edge. Let's see what happens. But yeah, what a morning. (laughs) And and what a year. I mean, for you, you you travel a lot for your job. So has it been very frustrating this year? Because I imagine you've been spending a lot of time at home. Yeah. You know, it's, it's frustrating because I can't work on the projects that are most important to me because I just, I want to be safe and I want to be cautious since I've been, you know, most of my work involves intimate contact with people, some of whom are in high risk groups and who don't live near me. So, you know, I, I, I don't want to incur that risk or burden them. Um, so that that's been really tough personally, but the nice thing is that, you know, the other half of my practice is running a nonprofit and doing a lot of um, advocacy work. So at least I've been able to throw myself into that for this year, which has probably been responsible for keeping me sane. Um, So, you know, thankfully I've had that to turn to and to keep me occupied, but yeah, it's, it's been a rough year for my for my photojournalism, for my photography. I'm sure, because now you mentioned that you can be able to focus because you're this, the founder of this, this organization, Women Photograph, which can you just explain what, what your purpose is for that? Yes. So uh, three and a half years, nearly four years ago, I started a nonprofit called Women Photograph. Uh, roughly 85% of working news photographers are men. Um, which is a huge problem, not just from a hiring equality standpoint, but from a sort of ethics of scene standpoint. Um, So if we consider the fact that news photographers, photojournalists, documentary photographers are really responsible for teaching us how to see because, you know, they give us a, a window into all sorts of issues and places and people we never otherwise would experience, the ways in which 
we as photographers interact with the world, interact with other people deeply impacts how we see and how we photograph. And I, you know, I think for a very long time, photographers and journalists at large have said to themselves, well, we're, we're these third party, impartial, unbiased observers. And so we sort of sit on the, the outside of issues and stories and, and it's our role to be very detached. And that's a nice idea in theory, but in practice, the truth is that our identities and our lived experiences hugely impact how we tell stories and how we see and, and all of these things. And so, you know, for me, it was it was really a huge sort of ethical issue in photojournalism that we were experiencing sports and politics and fashion and anything almost exclusively through the eyes of men. So I started this nonprofit primarily initially as a database uh, because I wanted to create a list essentially for photo editors so that when they needed to go hire a photographer in Bangladesh or in Kentucky or in Buenos Aires that they could go to this website and say okay here here are some photographers I may not have been aware of who weren't in my network and I can you know branch out um, and then in addition to that it was also really important to me that we create structural support for women and non-binary photographers so you know we do have a database it's now about a thousand and fifty independent women and non-binary photographers based in around 110 countries around the world. Um, we run an annual grants program to fund projects by women and non-binary photographers. So I think to date we've funded about $160,000 worth of projects. Um, we have an annual mentorship program where we pair uh, usually 22 to 24 early career photographers with one photo editor and one photographer mentor over the course of a year. Uh, we have an annual workshop, which we just concluded on Saturday over Zoom, which was very strange <laughs> because such as 2020. Oh, yeah. So I, I bet that you wish that you had something like this when you were starting out, having this support and, the, and this mentoring. I mean, how did you did you manage? Because if it was so male dominated, you must have been pretty determined. Yeah. And, I you know, I think the funny thing is I... There, there are so many different generational divides, I think, among women in photojournalism. And, and I feel like I'm kind of at the cusp of this, but I see in a lot of women older than me, there's this sense of, well, if you want to do it, you have to be tough and you have to deal with the sexual harassment and you have to deal with the constant misogyny. And, you know, I, I am tough and I did make it through that. And I had a lot of pretty not great experiences with shitty men who were being shitty. But I also, I don't think that should be a prerequisite to be a woman photographer in the journalism field, right? Mm -hmm. I, th I think that we want to and need people who are gentle and sensitive and, and maybe not the, you know, go head to head fighters that, that many of us have had to be to be able to survive and stick with it. Yeah. Um, because it really is, it's a retention issue, right? If you go to any photography program, any photojournalism program, the students are majority women. So it's not for lack of desire. There's some reasons that women start out in the field and then go, oh God, this is not for me. Mm. And so, mm. you know, I think figuring out how to create a culture shift, I, you know, I, I think I was fairly lucky comparatively speaking, but I, I didn't have community when I was starting out 15 years ago. And that's the thing that I really wish I'd had. Yeah, that's so important. And because um, I'm fascinated that you did architecture, even though I know that you were really desperate to be a journalist, but I mean, architecture is, is, is very artistic and, it, and you're using you know, your eyes and your, I guess there are links, but were you doing that going, I'm on the wrong course, I really should be doing something else here? No, it was actually a very intentional decision. And part of it, it worked out really well. And part of that was blind luck. And part of that was very explicitly engineered. So, you know, I, I grew up the daughter of 
a, a Vietnamese immigrant attorney and a first generation Eastern European Jewish immigrant doctor. And so in their mind's eye, it was, you know, so you can be a lawyer or a doctor. Those are the options. <laughs> and so I, you know, I think I wanted to be a journalist since I was 12. Um, and that never really sat well with them. I think it's, it's maybe taken them until like <laughs> two years ago for it to really sort of sink in. Um, but I knew I wanted to go to college. I wanted to go to university in New York. I wanted to start working for newspapers because as a teenager, for me, being a journalist meant working for newspapers. Um, and so I, I, I only really considered schools in New York City, and I was lucky enough to get into Columbia University, and I immediately joined the student newspaper, and then I pretty quickly realized, oh, wait, there's no undergraduate degree in journalism or photography. Um, <laughs> and really, you know, effectively as a way to feel like I was engaging with visual narrative and a visual discipline and also do something that was sort of quote-unquote respectable for my parents I decided <laughs> to study architecture. That was quite a cunning move you, you were kind of ticking the boxes and but you had an you had a plan in your the back of your mind but you were just going to have to take a while to get there I guess. Right and I mean the thing that actually that was unrelated to all of this that worked out best was the fact that you know at at Columbia, architecture is maybe the only discipline where the professors are themselves working professionals. They're teaching, but they're also running professional practices in the real world. They understand what it means to work and to have a job, and they're not just caught up in academia. And so for most of my college tenure, I was skipping most of my classes to go take assignments and go work as a photojournalist. And I think if I'd been majoring in history or poli-sci or philosophy, my professors would have been like, F, you are failing this class, you never showing up. But thankfully, my architecture professor said, you know what, you, you figured out what you like and what you're passionate about and you're doing it. And look, as long as you turn in your assignments, we don't care, it's fine. I had very generous, very gracious professors who I am <laughs> deeply indebted to or I, I probably would not have a college degree. <laughs> and uh, so you're building a portfolio, so very clever. You're studying at the same time as building this portfolio. Do you remember, I mean, you must have been taking photographs from a very young age. Do you remember those first photos that you took? Did you have one of those disposable cameras? How did it all begin for you? So, you know, I, I didn't actually come to photography until I was a college student. I wanted to be a journalist um, from an early age, but I, I think I was more drawn to the writing initially. And then in college, I, I accidentally fell into photography. There was a a moment during midterms where all of the photographers were busy and so my friend who was then the photo editor of the college newspaper called me and said look can you just do me a favor and here, here's a camera go take this photo and I was completely hooked um, and very shortly after that with really not nearly enough experience or training um, I ended up getting my first assignment for the New York Daily News which is uh, at the time was you know the largest tabloid in New York City and I think was the fourth biggest paper in America at the time. But you say that so matter-of-factly, I just, I got my first assignment. I mean, you've got to get your foot in the door, you've got to get noticed. How did you get noticed? Well, it was luck. I mean, you know, and I, I think my life has been extraordinarily lucky. And then obviously <laughs> there's an element of you need to set yourself up to be prepared for when you have those lucky opportunities come your way. But it, it was hugely lucky. The then president of Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, was coming to speak at Columbia the, you know, every September, the UN has this World Leaders Forum. Columbia was usually lucky enough to attract a number of them to come speak up at campus. And because of how notorious he was, because of his reputation, campus just locked down. The security was incredibly tight. No one was allowed in. So I think that, you know, the New York Times and one of the wire services was allowed to come and photograph and no one else. 
And so the Daily News called the undergraduate student newspaper and said, hey, is there someone who can photograph this for us? And I happened to be the photographer in the office at the time. And I was really nominally a photographer at that moment. But I said, yeah, of course I can do that. And it was the front page of the Daily News the next day. And I just started working for them from then on. And that's that's when my skipping of classes began. <laughs> well, that's amazing. But you also had to have the bravery to do that because a lot of people might go, uh, okay, this is quite a big deal. I can't do it. Or, you know, I might, I, I might muck it up. But you, you did it because I guess you saw the opportunity. Yes, exactly. I, I just thought, you know, this is why I'm here. This is why I came to New York. This is why I wanted to be here was to be able to get my foot in the door with newspapers, because that's in, in my 18 year old mind, that's what I want to do with my life. And so here, here was an opportunity and, you know, prepared or not, be damned. I'm just, I'm just going to go and try and see what happens. <laughs> do you think it's important to have a speciality? Because I know your work focuses a lot on the legacies of the Western colonization. And I wondered why you chose that and, and speciality is important or do you think it's, it's good to, to spread yourself? I think it really depends on what you want your practice to look like. Um, and, you know, I started out as a newspaper photographer and it's sort of the opposite. As a newspaper photographer, you have to be able to photograph everything, no matter what is thrown at you, whether it's a baseball game or a press conference at City Hall or Fashion Week. And, I, you know, I was doing all of those things with regularity, even if I didn't really know anything about sports or fashion. Um, but I think as I became more established in my practice and was able to start, yeah, I realized that I wanted to transition into much more long form work. So now my projects last for years and years and years rather than, you know, your average newspaper assignment, which is maybe a day at most. And I think that I, I, I say that somewhat jokingly that my legacy is that my work is focused on the legacy of Western colonization, but it is true. It is a very strong thread that runs through my work. Um, and I think that's more because of my identity and sort of my family history and the way in which I was raised, that that tends to be a framework that I think a lot about and want to encourage other people to think about how that has impacted our political and social and economic structures, because we don't, neither in Europe nor North America, do we really acknowledge the extent to which that has completely defined global politics and infrastructures. Um, so I, you know, I, I say that because it is something I'm deeply interested in, no matter what the application, but, but I don't think you necessarily need to have something that is so hyper-specific. I think, you know, I think it's good to have things that you're attracted to and to be able to define what your role is, what you see your role is as a storyteller. And that's, that's certainly mine. But I also think it's, there are so many different ways that you can do that. You talked though about at the beginning, you know, you're going to fashion shows, baseball games, and it's not something that you were particularly au fait with. So, I mean, there must have been times, I know when I'm doing interviews, you think, have I hit record? <laughs> Is it all going well? You must have had a few times when it's like, oh no. I mean, with digital work, I guess it's, it's a lot easier, but I, I'm thinking back to the times of, I mean, what, what sort of camera do you use? What, and, and has it ever gone completely <laughs> wrong? All the time. <laughs> I never studied photography, so I, I'm still just making it up as I go, right? Like, I, you know, I, I, I forget. I, I was in the Arctic for all of September uh, working on a project, and, I, you know, th there were all of these things that were happening with... It, it is highly technical when you're working in such extreme climates. And there were just yeah. all these things that I'd never had encountered before because I've never worked in extreme cold in that way. I, you know, so it's just, it's, it's funny to me to constantly be trying to play catch up but at the same time, I don't know, you know, that, that's part of our jobs, because even even had I gone to school 15 years ago and studied photojournalism, technology is so different now. I mean, like things yeah. are constantly evolving and it's just it's our job to continue to try to keep up and learn. 
Um, but no, it, it goes horribly wrong all the time. I, you know, I, I have gotten on the subway in New York City before without a single memory card in my camera bag and just looked down and gone, oh, shit, I, I <laughs> get off and go home. And how did I forget batteries today? And, you know, I think it's... I, I'm glad that you can laugh about it, but at least you could go home and sort it out. But there's, uh, you know, if you're out in the field and you can't go go back to, to you know, to your house or a hotel... It's not so easy if things go wrong. But I guess then if you are other journalists around, other photographers, that's what you were talking about a community earlier on. You can you can help each other, hopefully. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, as the stakes get higher, obviously you become more careful. And it's, when I was a news photographer in New York, you know, I, I would get a call from my desk and I would have to be out the door in five minutes. And so there's a lot, a lot more space for error in that context than, you know, if I'm working on a project on my own and I, you know, it's, it's a little more contemplative and I can be much more methodical in my planning. But I mean, you know, I think on my second ever assignment for the Daily News, the sensor in my camera just died. And so I had to, you know, run to the newspaper office and borrow a camera. And it just, these things happen. You know, I remember I was filing once and my laptop just, my just laptop just decided to quit. It just didn't want to work while I was, you know, on the scene of, of some crime scene on Fifth Avenue in the Upper East Side. And an AP photographer who almost certainly did not have the time to let me do this, say here, look, you can use my laptop to edit and file. Let's don't worry about it. So, you know, I think we all, I I talk a lot about in the context of women photograph, you know, photojournalists operate from this space of scarcity a lot that we're all in competition with each other. We're all fighting for a limited amount of resources, assignments, whatever. Life is so much better when we cooperate and when we help each other out and lift each other up. So I, I firmly believe that there have definitely been a ton of people in my life and career who've done that for me. So I try to pay it forward and we talk as well we talked about working in Africa and you just said being at a crime scene in New York do you ever find it difficult when there is a subject that's really difficult to see and you're pointing a camera at it and, and you're thinking oh this is hard it's hard for me but people maybe are looking at me because I am pointing a, a camera at a difficult situation do, do you struggle with that sometimes yeah I mean you know especially I've, I've been a photographer in a lot of different ways now um, and I think even early on my original concept of what photojournalism at its sort of pinnacle was, was conflict photography. And I really wanted to be a conflict photographer for a while. And now having worked on the peripheries of conflict, of having been close to front lines and realizing, no, that that is not the way in which I am at my best. I, I am a deep empath. I am great at sitting down with people and hearing about their life stories and understanding their situation, their positionality, and being able to share those stories with others. I am not great when there is, you know, an IED going off in the car three in front of mine. I just like shut down and I am not a, a functional journalist. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think I, I still cover very difficult topics. And I think, you know, most of my long-term bodies of work deal with things like intergenerational trauma and assault and, you know, the, the very firm manifestations of colonialism at its worst, cultural genocide. Um, But a lot of that pain and trauma, I try not to actually show through the photographs themselves. I I try to approach it from, from different avenues because I think to some extent, I don't think we need to see more images of suffering. I think we have become very desensitized to those kinds of images. And I, I think that's become very harmful to us talking to people though you, you say you that's kind of your empathy that's what you really enjoy but that still is very difficult for you you must at the end of the day maybe if you're traveling abroad and you're away from 
friends and family so you're maybe on your own and also then you're dealing with all this stuff kind of keeps you awake at night what you've what you've heard and what you've seen um it does and it's I you know it's it's part of the job and it's it's definitely not sometimes you figure out ways to compartmentalize and to sort of intake in a healthy way and sometimes you don't and I definitely you know go through phases where I'm doing both um but it is also it it is my reason for being it's the thing that I love to do most so yeah you know it, it can get very unhealthy I think a significant number of journalists suffer from PTSD and don't really have the wherewithal to understand that or heal from it because you know we we do either witness or hear secondhand about some of the worst things that can possibly happen to humanity um and it's our responsibility to be able to take care of ourselves if we want to be able to responsibly tell stories but that being said it's it is also this sort of secondary part of that drama is that it's it's hard to prioritize your own emotions when you are talking to people who have gone through something so much worse and yeah, it's complicated, but it's it, important it that we just be open. Well, yeah, and it's important that, that you, you tell us about these things, because I had no idea this Signs of Your Identity project that you did. I wondered if you could just explain, because when I was reading about it, I was like, these, these Canadian residential schools, I think a lot of people don't really know what happened. So this was something dreadful, wasn't it? Yeah, so this is, you know, this is a story that I came across in 2014, um, and I've been working on the project almost continuously since. So I, you know, I, I had been working in East Africa for years, looking at the rise of homophobia and how anti-gay legislation and homophobia in general is very much a product of Western colonization and British penal codes and American evangelicals and sort of that work very indirectly led me to an AIDS conference in Melbourne in 2014, where I talked about how, you know, when you criminalize sexual minorities, when you criminalize gay people, there's almost always a public health consequence. You know, HIV rates spike because people don't feel safe in going to doctors, in accessing healthcare. Um, and while I was there presenting, I just, I read this UN AIDS report that referenced the fact that one of the groups of people in the world with the fastest growing rates of HIV was First Nations Canadians. And I'm not a public health expert, but that made no sense to me. You know, I, America's health care system is deeply broken and horrible. But, you know, Canada's kind of got its shit together. It's, you know, they've got <laughs> nationalized health care. You have relatively cheap or free access to doctors and medicine and hospitals. And yet there was this population that had been completely left behind in, in a just wholesale epidemic. And so I went to Canada and started interviewing HIV positive indigenous Canadians, and almost every single person I talked to told me about their time in Indian residential school. And I had never heard of this system. And it was sort of this combined horror of the of, of this system I'd never heard of that lasted for 120 years in Canada and is still ongoing in the United States. And the fact that I'd just never heard of it before was staggering to me in, in any context, in secondary school, in university. Um, and so, you know, as a sort of brief primer in the 1870s, the Canadian government created a network of boarding schools for First Nations, for Indigenous children in Canada. And they were essentially, they were made mandatory by law. They were funded by the government and operated by churches. And children were kidnapped from their communities and families and forced to attend these schools. And the stated purpose was to assimilate them into the dominant Western culture. So they were punished if they spoke their language, their hair was cut off, they had to wear Western clothes, their names were changed, they had to convert to Christianity and attend church. There was rampant physical and sexual assault. There was medical testing done on children. A lot of young women were sterilized. Just these unspeakably horrible things happened to 150,000 indigenous Canadians. And the last school didn't close until 1996. Wow. In our 
acknowledgement of and conversations about the oppression of indigenous people in North America, we tend to think about things that happened hundreds of years ago. You know, we think about smallpox blankets and the Indian Wars and the Trail of Tears and Wounded Knee. And, you know, those are things that are very much in the distant past, but we, we don't really think about it as an ongoing story. And, um, you know, I, any indigenous person in North America I've encountered has had a relative or have themselves attended one of these boarding schools. And it is, it is still a deep source of trauma um, in indigenous communities. And so I've, I've been working on this story now since 2014. And you get the beginning of this story, you start talking to people and you think, wow, this is just an incredible thing that I need to share. But how do you decide how you're gonna tell this story through photography? Because you could do it in many different ways, couldn't you? Well, and so, and, and here, you know, you referenced the mistakes that we make. This was sort of one of the first, to me, less, less of a technical mistake, but this is the, sort of the first ethical mistake that I think I made was that, you know, I, my pathway into the story was as a public health crisis. And in urban indigenous communities in Canada, the primary vehicle for spreading HIV is through injection drug use that is very connected to the opioid crisis. And so as someone who considers herself a photojournalist, a documentary photographer, when I went to Canada on that very first trip, the images I was making was of First Nations people dealing with opioid addiction who were HIV positive, who, who had, you know, substance abuse issues. And so I came home with a body of images that showed that and realized, and this is, this is bad journalism. This is not actually getting to the root of the issue. This is not actually helping people understand what the historical and cultural context of all of these individuals lives and families are. This, this doesn't encourage people to dig deeper and think more deeply about this history. And so I had to go back to the nonprofit that had funded the first trip and say, hey, I screwed up and I can't publish these images. I think they are very bad journalism and irresponsible and stigmatizing. So could you give me some more money so I could go back and do it again? I mean, that is, you'd be brave to do that. You must have been dreading that conversation. It, it wasn't great, but... Um, <laughs> The, you know, I, I already had a good relationship with this organization. They had funded a lot of my work in Uganda uh, over the past few years. And so we, we trusted each other. I think if that had been my first ever grant, they would have been like, bye, we're never talking to you again. Um, but, you know, thankfully I had that, that relationship. They trusted me. They understood the argument that I was making. And so they said, okay, fine, just go do whatever you're going to do. And so when I went back, I, you know, I, even though I do consider myself in many ways a very traditional photojournalist, I, I decided to do something a, a little less traditional in my process. And so I ended up creating a series of double exposure portraits. Uh, so each one is a composite image that overlays the portrait of a boarding school survivor with an image that shows the site or something related to the memory of that person's experience. Um, because for me, this is very much a story about historical trauma and the things we pass from generation to generation and the ways in which they stay with us. Um, and that that's a hard thing to photograph, especially when the last of these schools had closed in the 90s. They're incredible. Yeah, the, the images are, are incredible. And you're still working on this. And when this all pandemic is over, you'll be going back. So I spent so that first uh, year I worked in Canada um, and that work has been published in a book and has, has been widely published. I went to Australia uh, where there was a very similar story. It's the stolen generation. It was slightly different. It was sort of manifested itself slightly more in foster care uh, and care homes than in boarding schools, but essentially the same idea of we are going to remove children from their indigenous culture and context and community, and we're going to whitewash them. Um, and then I spent more or less three years in the United States because America, of course, invented the Indian boarding school. Um, 
And so that work will be published in National Geographic uh, fairly soon. Um, wow. And then I, my goal is to continue, you know, pretty much any colonial government that has had contact with an indigenous community has created some very equivalent form of the sporting school structure. The Chinese are currently doing it to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Um, Japanese did it to the Ainu. You know, it happened all over Latin America from Spanish and Portuguese colonizers. Happened in North Africa, you know, the, the Norwegians did it to the Sami. Um, so it's, it is sort of a, a global, very common and sinister story. Um, mm. So my hope is to continue working on it for quite some time. And, and for all these projects, you talked about how you had to go back and, um, and get more funding. Do you find that you want to just get out there, you want to tell the stories, but actually you spend a lot of your time trying to get grants and trying to get the money for all these projects. That must be a, a big part of the job. It is. Um, you know, I joke that my job is... T- 10% taking photos and 90% sending emails. That's really <laughs> the breakdown. Um, but you know, that's okay. It's what it's, I, I made a decision fairly early on that as much as I loved being a newspaper photographer, and I'm really grateful for that being sort of my foundation as a journalist, I really wanted to have the freedom to work on projects for months or years. And the only way that was going to be possible was through grant funding and foundational funding. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I started as early as possible to try to transition into that um, and luckily have been able to make myself sustainable um, in sort of an almost full-time way, working exclusively on my projects, which is a dream. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a lot of a lot of work and a lot of hustling, but I, I don't really want to work in any other way because the time that it grants me to really dig into stories, I think, is invaluable. And isn't it interesting how you started out, you know, you got this photograph um, when you were at college in Columbia and it started out working with, with the magazines and the papers. But actually, as time's gone on, you, you realise that wasn't quite what you wanted to do and you really focused on, on these projects. And that's really, that's really lovely that you're, you're doing something you really want to do. It's hard, but it's, it's, it's changed from your initial, your, your initial startup, isn't it? It has. And I think, you know, the fundamental thing is the same. It's communicating with the general public and telling stories through photography. That has sort of always been the goal. Um, but the vehicle has just changed. And part of that is because, you know, the media landscape has changed and what newspapers and magazines can support um, has been shrinking more and more. And, you know, that's it's just the times we're living in and it's unfortunate, but, you know, really the National Geographic is one of the few outlets that I work for that can sustain a project for months on end. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my first story for them, you know, I was able to be in the field for four months, which is a huge luxury, but I, I really can't think of any other outlet really that can do that. Um, so most of the time, and, you know, the, the other, I was going to use the word issue, it's not an issue, but the, the other sometimes frustration is that, you know, when you are working on assignment for an outlet, that means that there are all of these other people who are part of the storytelling process. You have editor and, you know, you're working in partnership and collaboration with them and they're incredible, very smart people, but I'm a little stubborn and eccentric in my process. And sometimes I just like being out in the field, working by myself, and then at the end of it going and saying, here, this is what I've made. Would you like to publish it? And that just for my own process, that often works better than having someone looking over my shoulder. Uh huh. And, and you talked about how media has changed. Um, I mean, Instagram, particularly and Twitter as well. But I imagine Instagram is, is a great way for photographers to get their work out there and for people to see it. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it really is, it's a dissemination platform as well. And so I, I really, you know, aside from all of the horrible ethical issues I have with Facebook, um, you know, and, and the things that they have done in the past few years, I, I do think that Instagram is 
a wonderful space for me being able to communicate directly to my audience. Because in the past, it was, you know, I, I would have to get my work published in a media outlet. And the process of doing that often would involve complicated, sometimes frustrating conversations about, well, no, I'd rather you not use this language. No, I'd rather you not have this text accompanying this photograph. Well, no, I need to make sure that this context is applied. And now, you know, I, I have an audience of about 100,000 people who I can just speak to directly and say, hey, this is what I'm working on today. This is a problem I ran into, or this is the way that I tackled this issue. Here, here's the behind the scenes. Here's what I think through. And I think you know, not only is it nice for me to be able to feel like I can directly reach a pretty significant audience, you know, at this point is the size of like a mid-sized American newspaper, but also it, I think it works in the opposite way of you know, we're, we're at an all-time low of people trusting journalists, especially in the United States, especially because of a, a specific politician. Um, and so being able to feel like I can actually build trust directly with people who are invested in my work and who I am as a photojournalist is, is really important that I can say, look, like, this is exactly the way in which I work. These are the ethical codes and regulations that I sort of uphold. These are the ways that I think, these are the things that I think are absolutely immutable. These are the things that I think need to be questioned that I, I often will push the boundaries of in my work. Um, and I, I really love that I can engage in conversation directly in that way. And it's lovely that you can have control as well. You said that when you're out in the field, you, you quite like working on your own and doing your own thing. And when you post stuff on 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 say Instagram, like you say, you're the one. You're, this is this is how it looks, and this is how I want it to look, and I've got nobody fiddling with it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so, I mean, if we were to look back at, at the pivotal moments in in what's been an incredible career so far, I mean, I mean, it all started for you when you were at the university doing that architecture degree and taking that photograph, but getting that photograph and then building that portfolio, but also. Your characteristics, you know, you say a lot of older women in this set, in this business say you just got to get on with it, but you've got to be brave. Do you, what other qualities do you think that you need to, to work in? A, it's a tough career. It is. And I think, you know, part of the problem is that, like, you know, I, I there are so many ways in which you can be a photojournalist. And that used to include being a staff photographer at a small newspaper or a wire photographer and you know so many of those jobs are vanishing that you know the vast majority of my colleagues are now independent and managing a freelance business is a lot of work mm. I, you know i i kind of from the beginning i, I you know I, I graduated into a recession and i think for me it was maybe the very beginning of my generation realizing maybe staff jobs are not a possibility and so i i think i was never attracted to that idea partially because of copyright issues in the US, you know, if you work for a newspaper, you don't own your photographs. And very early on, I identified that I that wasn't something that I wanted to do. Um, but the, the flip side is that managing a freelance business is a lot of work and takes, uh, you know, you, you have to be an accountant and you have to be a PR person and you, you, know, you have to be able to do all this stuff that is not what you actually want to be doing with your yeah, time. Admin, 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 admin. Yeah, you know, and, and marketing and, and, you know, financial, it's, it's just, it's, it's a yeah. lot. And I think also maybe even more so than, and so that's, you know, those are skills that you can learn or you can outsource to someone if you can afford to pay someone to do it for you. But maybe more importantly, is I think you just you have to have the mindset for it because there it's absolutely feast or famine. You go through these, especially early on, these periods where no one is calling you for weeks or months and you don't know when your next paycheck is going to be. You don't know how you're going to make money. You don't know how to get your foot in the door with the New York Times or Time Magazine or whatever it is. Um, and being able to sort of be zen about that and, <laughs> you know, 
either figure out what your financial side hustle is so you can pay your rent and not starve and say to yourself, this will work out. I will make this work out. I will figure out a way. Um, I think some people are more disposed to being okay with dealing with that uncertainty than others. And that's, that's fine. I think you just, but you need to know that about yourself and whether or not that's going to be very difficult to handle. Yes. And is that the sort of advice, because I know you go to a lot of universities and and talk to students, is that the sort of thing that you say to them and just keep going at it? Because there must be many times when you get turned down, when you thought, this is a fantastic piece of work and I want to share it and nobody wants it, which is why I suppose that you you do your own projects because you've got more control. Yeah, exactly. And it's also, you know, I I think... I think it's very, I, I get rejected all the time. I, you know, it took probably 50 grant applications before my first one was ever approved. And I think it's important to just remember it's not personal. There are <laughs> so many photographers who have incredible work that maybe you just weren't a fit for that particular jury or that particular organization. It doesn't mean that your work is bad. Use it as an opportunity, you know, reach out to your colleagues, to people who reject you, use it as an opportunity to improve and constantly be reworking. But you just, you, you can't, if you believe in your process, in your craft, in the work that you do, as long as you are constantly evaluating the things behind it, you just, you, you can't give up. You have to keep doing it. And I, I think we're having more transparent conversations these days in photojournalism about why that's easier said than done, especially if you don't have generational wealth, for instance, because photojournalism is not a cheap field to get into with the cost of camera equipment. Um, but it's also, you know, there are, there are also more and more diverse income streams now than there ever have been before. So, you know, I, I was a bartender for the first few years of my career. I also was a freelance web designer. I made sure that I actually had a solid income because photojournalism alone probably wasn't going to do it. It's being prepared to have a side hustle, isn't it? Always. And I, yeah, I always, I, I, it's funny. I always call it my side hustles. And someone the other day was just like, isn't that kind of derogatory? And I was like, no, I I don't think so. Like, I I don't care what your side hustle is when you're starting out. If you're photographing weddings, if you're doing headshots for people who want to be actors, or if it's something totally unrelated, you know, just whatever, as long as you can pay your, yeah, just do it, pay your bills and find the time and mental energy to also make space for the thing that you are passionate about. And, Mm. you know, whatever that, I, I think there's so much stigma among photojournalists specifically of, oh, you shoot weddings? Oh, like, oh, you do this thing that's not like part of our our very ephemeral, you know, but as long as you're just making time to do the thing you care about, who cares what the other tips are along the way? And it's great you're doing stuff that you really care about. And I imagine working on those projects in Africa and um, when you went to Canada as well, those were big turning points in your career because it got you more noticed. And was there anybody who really helped you along the way that, that got your foot in the doors or, um, you know, you talked about this community, but were there other people that really encouraged you? Um, I mean, I think there are, there are countless people along the way who, you know, took risks on me when I didn't necessarily warrant it. So, you know, the, the first editor who hired me at the New York Daily News, I literally had no business working for them. <laughs> But I, you know, I had a friend who had also worked in the college paper, who was a stringer at the time uh, for the Daily News. And so he introduced me to the then, like the sort of legendary crime staff photographer at the Daily News who said, well, come on a lot, ride along with me. And so I, you know, went with him as he was driving the wrong way, you know, <laughs> off the highways in New York, you know, listening to a police scanner. And then he took me into the office and he introduced me to the director of photography, this, you know, crusty guy in suspenders who, you know, <laughs> still smoked cigars in the office. Um, and, you know, it's it just all of those connections, all of those like, well, you're 
probably too young. You're probably not really ready, but here, anyway, just try this thing, see what happens. Um, and I appreciate, I appreciate the people who took those risks because otherwise I, you know, I wouldn't have been able to get where I am. And I think that's something that we all in different ways need to be willing to do. And I, you know, I think it's part of the conversation right now about mm. how we diversify the industry is you need to be able to take risks. You need to be able to do things outside of your comfort zone because you have your roster of photographers you always call and you love working with and they're reliable and they deliver and that's great. But if they're all white or if they're all men, we have a problem. And so you need, you need to take risks on someone new. You need to reach out and find something outside of your comfort zone. Mm. Um, otherwise, we just stagnate and we stay in the same place. But I think with you, it's less of people helping you. And, um, and in that, I think it's more your personality. You know, you had a passion and you absolutely went for it. And you weren't going to let anything get in your way. And you were going to take risks. I think that's, a, that's been a massive part in your career. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, I, I also am lucky in that unlike many people starting out who are my college, you know, I, I didn't incur huge amounts of college debt. I, you know, I, I started from a different point of a lot of people, which obviously is a huge amount of privilege. And so, you know, would it be as feasible for someone who graduated with six figures of college loans they had to pay back to become a freelance photographer? Maybe not. Um, and so that, that obviously had a huge impact on whether or not I could pursue the thing I wanted to pursue. But yes, I am, I am also wildly stubborn and persistent. Um, and so that has served me well, for sure. And, and I love the fact that it's, it's only been about two years, but your parents are now on board with, with, with what you do. And they must be really proud of these incredible stories that you've uncovered and the, the images that you've brought back. It comes and goes. But yeah, I, I, think, <laughs> I think we're at that point. <laughs> What's next for you then? Because I mean, we've, we're in a pandemic. Is that a story that you'd like to tell? What other stories would you like to tell? I know you're still very focused on uh, the Canadian and the Australian story and, and elsewhere in the world. And you're going you're gonna to go to China, I imagine, and, and follow the story there. What, 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 what else? I mean, I, I would like to, my, my main concern is that I put anyone I work with at risk, um, whether they're translators or fixers or the people I interview. Uh, so that that's a really complicated story to work on from a security perspective, because it's not, it's not just access, which is already incredibly difficult with China, one of the most closed off countries in the world. Um, it's, it's a matter of, of what kind of danger am I putting other people into and then just leaving and, you know, going back to my life. So I, you know, I think the, the reason why I haven't, tackled that more head on has been because I'm incredibly concerned about the ramifications, even, you know, and, and we've seen that the Chinese government has extended uh, its uh, intelligence reach into Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan and have managed to go after uh, weaker distance there. So I, that, that requires a lot more sort of methodical planning on my part. Um, I have about three other long-term projects in progress at the moment. Um, well, I've been following a Syrian family for about five years now, uh, where six adult children in their 20s and 30s, all their, the families from Raqqa, which became essentially the capital of ISIS, um, and their six adult children had to flee and all went on the refugee trail through Europe and they each ended up in a different country. Um, and it's this incredibly tight-knit loving family and now they're just scattered across Eurasia. And so looking at what that means and how do you rebuild and how do you stay connected in the aftermath of war, um, wow. that has been a a really important long-term project for me. Um, mm. I've also been documenting a family in Canada, uh, sort of a, a very beautiful, complicated, mixed family where the dad is a trans man who uh, transitioned in his 30s and before that, you know, gave birth to four biological children, um, left his 
uh, original partner married a woman while identifying as a lesbian and and then came out as a man and so it's but it, it's a it's a very happy lovely story of you know their their life is super complicated and involves a lot of you know dad one and dad two but it's also happy and I think many of the stories we see in the media about trans people in general are are not happy yeah. um, and involve very very depressing consequences so it's it's nice to work on that. Um, I sort of as the counterpoint to signs of your identity, I've been looking at the resurgence of indigenous autonomy in education systems, particularly in the South Pacific in uh, Polynesia. So, you know, I started the last place I went for signs of your identity in the U.S. was Hawaii um, and learning about the history of the boarding school system there and the sort of American, the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy and the ways in which Hawaiian culture has resurged since then. Um, you know, in 1980, there were fewer than 50 native speakers of the Hawaiian language under the age of 18. The language was imminently going to die. Uh, and it was actually illegal to teach in Hawaiian um, because, yay, American government. And then a group of, of educators essentially said, you know, even, even if we can't do this, we're going to start a daycare. And we're going to get a bunch of grandmothers to come and speak Hawaiian to our kids. And they kept pushing and kept pushing and they managed to push through all this education reform. And now there are these incredible Hawaiian medium schools where you can raise your kids entirely. They can go to school entirely in the Hawaiian language. Um, and I think there are now more than 10,000 native speakers um, in the Hawaiian islands, which is incredible and not, not something we've seen much with indigenous languages that are endangered so wow you've just educated me through those three massive topics I'm just like my mind is blown it's, and, and I guess you probably during this pandemic you're probably just sitting thinking you're like oh I could do this I could do you've got time to think about it but it's also frustrating because you just want to get out there and do it I want to get out there and do it but I, I it is not responsible for me as an outsider to fly to Hawaii where <laughs> you know they have been safe and you know I think they just recently reopened the tourists and of course COVID numbers are now spiking because Americans want to go on vacation and they want to go to the beach. And so, you know, thinking about how to be respectful and responsible to the communities that I document means that I need to keep my ass home. Yeah, well, you just got to be patient, haven't you? But at least it means, you know, going back to the beginning of our conversation, you can really champion uh, women photographers in, in, in women photographs. So, you know, that's giving you, giving you a bit of time. But, you know, hopefully when this is all over, I cannot wait to see the results of all these stories because... It's just fascinating and I can't wait to see see what you do next. But we're going to be looking out for you some work in the National Geographic from you, did you say, very soon? Yes. Um, I don't know when exactly, but it, it will be in the magazine I would in the next in the next year. Everything's a bit slow at the moment, but we've just got to just be patient. But I, I think it's incredible the stories that you've uncovered so far and, and the work that you've done. It's And it's inspiring. And I'm sure many people listening will be just like... I, I really want to do this sort of thing, but having listened to Daniela, it is possible. It really is. So, so thank you for sharing your stories. It's incredible. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to Daniela for talking to me. And you can follow her on Twitter at DZeltman. And as she said, she's on Instagram too. We're on Twitter at Where Go Right. If you're interested in journalism, we've got other journalists on the pod. Uh, go and get your ears around episodes with Natalie Jameson and Oliver Holt. And there's loads of other writers on there too. And if you could rate us as well, that would be great. Thank you to Megan for being an excellent producer as always. And Laura Shipsey for the music. See you next week. This episode of Where Did It All Go Right is sponsored by Pearson. Pearson is the world's learning company, supporting talent and helping everyone to make progress in their lives through learning. Working with teachers and education experts, 
Pearson provides a wide range of qualification routes, so you can pick the course which suits you best to develop your skills and stand out in the crowd. Visit them online at go.pearson.com forward slash where did it all go right.